Livermore podcast. We hope you'll enjoy this message by Pastor Joshua Harris. Hi, everybody. Pastor Josh back again this week. Uh, we are continuing to pray for Pastor Joe. He's doing a lot better, but we are still having him rest his voice. It's almost back. Uh, and he is completely healthy. It's just a matter of making sure that voice comes back all the way full. So uh, you'll see him back on this feed starting in January, but uh, asking him to rest till the end of the year, uh, which gives me an opportunity to jump in here. And, you know, tests like this come. And we've been talking about the idea of tests and the value of tests in our life and how tests are actually connected to something Jesus said that when I first read it doesn't remind me of tests. It's in John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, an overflowing, more than enough life. And we've been sharing that doesn't necessarily mean uh, a challenge-free life or a comfortable life or an easy life or a convenient life. It means a life that really has all the things God intends for us to have in our lives and overflowing amounts of it, purpose, his presence, power, peace, love, joy, an overflowing of all the good that God intends for us. Now, we said in order to walk into that, we're going to need a different spirit. It says that Caleb had a different spirit and followed God wholeheartedly. Because of that, God promised to bring him into the land and that his descendants would inherit the land. In other words, to walk into all the promises God has for us, we're going to need a different spirit. We're going to need to be able to see situations. In Caleb's case, he saw giants in the land, but he also saw that with God, we are well able to defeat those giants. Now, how do we get a different spirit? We talked about that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to live a life that we could not live, die a death we deserve to die, rise from the dead to offer us a reconnection, a reconciliation with God that we could know God. And it, this is how it works. He said, repent, turn back to him, Peter says. Every one of you be baptized. In other words, die to your old life and come back into a new life, and God will have this thing called the remission of sins through Jesus Christ. He'll forgive you, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God wants to actually put his spirit inside on our spirit, living with us, abiding in us is the way the Bible describes it, walking with us, talking with us, living with us, carrying us through every situation of life. In that new spirit, we can live spiritually, relationally, in all our circumstances in a way that would honor God. In Philippians, it describes this lifestyle as being taking on the very nature of a servant. That's what Jesus did. And he did that for a very specific reason, to glorify God the Father. He said he did all these things, the serving, the sacrifice, the patience, the love, was to ultimately for the glory of God the Father. And we reminded ourselves that the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains the chief end of man or the chief purpose of humanity and people is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Today, we're going to look at a very specific test that came in the Old Testament and how it can give us revelation of what God is doing in our lives through the journey of a test. Uh, this test has some interesting characters involved in a bunch of kings, and, and it starts with this battle. And so the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of uh, Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, that doesn't clear it up for me. I don't know if you know all the topography there and all the geography there. Uh, I'm not as familiar, but it's five kings fighting four kings, and they're battling in this area. So you have this war, four kings against five kings. And it says they were battling in this particular valley called Siddim, uh, which was full of asphalt pits. 
And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, so they get defeated. And some fell there, the remainder fled to the mountains, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and they went their way. Now, here's where we join the story. So massive battle, massive fight. Uh, our hero is named Abram in the story. He's not even involved yet. He's not involved. These aren't his people. This isn't his fight. This isn't his issue. But what happens is in the middle of this fight, it says that the winners also took Lot. Now, that's Abram's brother's son. In other words, his nephew. And they dwelt in, who dwelt in Sodom, and they took his goods and they departed. So here's the scenario. You're just living your own life. You got your own challenges. In fact, part of the story earlier was Lot, this guy Lot and Abram have separated because their herd started getting so big, they didn't have enough room to stay together. So they've actually parted ways. So this is a, a, a relative, a nephew, who's actually left and gone to do his own thing. So there was some relational struggle there, and now they've moved in different directions. Now, when Abram heard that his brother, and I find this really interesting, uh, the word there can be translated relative, but it's normally translated brother. When his brother was taken captive, that's how he sees his nephew. This is a close relative. The idea is someone we share a heart with. You know, it's kind of a bro, but in the sense of like, we're very close to each other. Uh, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. So interesting, Abram has... Exactly 318 trained servants born in his house. He's prepared for battle, even though there hasn't been a battle yet. And I found this really interesting. Here's this guy, Abram, who's walking towards this, this country he doesn't even know about. He's living his life by faith, yet day in, day out, he's training his household in case of what might come ahead. Now, he takes those 318 and they pursue these kings, right? So there are 318 people pursuing a whole army and actually multiple armies of multiple kings. So he divides his forces by night, and his servants attack. They pursue these guys as far as uh, Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So imagine this. This huge army of kings fights this other huge army of kings. One army wins. They take off all the captives. Now this one guy in his one house with his 318 dudes run after them, beat them, and take all the people who are in slavery and all the people who are captive, and they bring them back. So the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abram uh, in this valley of Shava, King's Valley, and uh, after, the, after the battle, right? And also this other king. So this is where this story gets really weird. And you go, wow, this Old Testament is a different kind of book. All of a sudden, there's a 10th king. So remember, we've been talking about the idea of 10. So here comes our 10th king. We had nine kings, five fighting four. Now we got our 10th. And his name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek actually means something very specific. It means king of Salem or king of peace. So uh, a lot of uh, theologians believe this is what's called a Christophany or a theophany, uh, the picture of God appearing tangibly, physically in the Old Testament. And he brings out specifically bread and wine, uh, which might picture in our minds as New Testament believers the idea of communion, or in the Old Testament, we might have thought of the Passover, right? Uh, later, this is before the Passover. Now, he brings out bread and wine because he was the priest of God the Most High. And he blesses Abram, but it's really interesting what he says. So this guy shows up out of nowhere, brings him bread and wine. He's you know, almost picturing communion. We got our communion elements right here. And he's blessing Abram. And here's what he says. Bless be Abram uh, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I thought about this moment. Here's Abram, who this was not his problem. This was not his issue. He didn't have to fix all this. 
Yet he takes his own men who he's spent years training and he runs down these armies and he defeats the armies and he brings these people back. Now all of a sudden this guy shows up who he has no idea who he was. We have no, he's never been in the story before. And all of a sudden he says, it was God who has delivered your enemies. That's a different kind of test. Abraham's now been tested with test number one. Lot and you have been fighting and now Lot's in captive. Hey, it's not my problem. Am I my brother's keeper? Let him go do his own thing. Abram chooses, no, I love my relatives, I love my family, I want to honor them by, even though it's not my problem, if it's his problem, it's my problem, I'm going to go help him. Now that he's helped him, he comes back, and he faces sort of a different test. It's a test of honor and humility. Does he recognize it's actually God who gave him the victory? You know, sometimes in my own life, when I have some huge problem that's beyond me that I have no idea how to solve, and God shows up and does something, or a situation changes, or a miracle happens, I go, wow, man, God, you're so good. Thank you for delivering me. But in other occasions, when something more simple that in my head I can do myself, or I work towards it, say I get a degree, or I um, you know, prosper in a particular uh, uh, project I'm working on, I might think, wow, it's me that did that. Here's this priest coming and saying, wow, God did that for you. And this is another test. Do we recognize even the things we think we do in our own strength, God's actually given us the ability to do that. And we recognize and honor him. Well, here's how Abram honors him. He gives him a tithe of all. In other words, he gives him one-tenth of all the spoil, okay? That was Abram's way of saying, yes, I recognize God was, had his hand on this victory. Now, it's interesting what happens next, a new test. So this just series of tests hits Abram. This king of Sodom comes to him and says, hey, just give me the people. You can keep all the goods for yourself. Now, that might sound like a great deal. Abram's like, yeah, I'm the one who won the battle. I should get some spoils. To the victors go the spoils. I've heard of that. Let me get some increase from this. I'm the, I'm the victorious one anyway. That was actually a temptation. What the king of Sodom was trying to do, Abraham smells out and he says this. He says to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. It's very interesting. Those words he just said are the exact same words that Melchizedek said to describe God. He's God most high. There's a God above any other God. There's a Lord above every other Lord. There's a king above every other king. That guy owns heaven and earth. And I promised him I would take nothing, uh, not even a thread from a sandal strap. I would not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I think that's so interesting. Abram recognizes this king of Sodom sees the blessing on Abram, and now he's going to try to reattribute it to himself rather than to God. If you allow someone to be the kingmaker of your life, I don't know if you've heard that term, kingmaker. It's the idea that someone else is using their influence, their money, their wealth, their power, their persuasion, their wisdom to make you become something that you're supposed to be. The danger of that is that person thinks that you, they now have sway over you, power over you, and they sit back and take the credit for something God's ultimately doing. And that's why Abram stood against it. He said, no way, because if we do it that way, you're going to say it was you who made me rich instead of recognizing it was God who made us rich. So he refuses to take any extra other than what the men had eaten at the time. Now, how does God respond when we pass these tests? How did Abram pass the test? Number one, he had compassion and he helped his nephew even in a difficult situation. He saw him as a brother, he served and helped. Number two, he passed the test of the temptation to take the credit or the spoils for himself, but rather he left his blessing and his provision to God. Here's how God 
showed up for Abram. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I find this interesting. What was he afraid of? This guy just wiped out a bunch of kings with his 318 trained men. I was like, I'm not sure Abram's that afraid. What would he be afraid of? We're going to learn through the next few verses exactly what Abram was afraid of. God now says to him, hey, I'm your protector. I'm the one who's going to make things work out for you. And I am your very great reward. Not just am I going to reward you for your faithfulness. I am the reward that you're going to receive. So Abraham says to him, well, sovereign Lord, that's great. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. This is the attitude I hear in Abraham's response. Hey, that's great. What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. I find this very fascinating. We live in a culture, I certainly live this way, where I'm very self-focused. When I think of blessing, when I think of provision, when I think of God being my protector and my reward, I, I think of myself. I think of me. But here we have Abram understanding something much deeper, and I think letting us into a window into the heart of God. When God thinks of blessing, when God thinks of promotion, when God thinks of promise, when God thinks of inheritance, when God thinks of reward, he's thinking generational blessing. And so Abram says, I can't be blessed unless there's a generation that I can pour that blessing into that continues the journey. He's thinking next generation from day one. And certainly in his own life, he's saying, look, you give this all to me, what's going to happen is I'm just going to give it over to my servant because I don't have an heir. But if you give it to me and I have an heir, now I can pass it on and this thing can build generationally and bless the nations, bless the generations. So the word of the Lord comes to him and says, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and your own blood will be your heir. So he took him outside and he said, look up in the sky, count the stars, if indeed you even can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. You know, so often in my own life, I'm asking God for just a little bit of provision. Just give me the one cracker. Just give me enough to get me by today. And he's going, go to this supermarket and look at all this stuff. This is what the provision level I'm planning to give you is. Now, when he said this, he wasn't speaking in, I, I'm, I live in Singapore, other people live in big cities. You go outside, you could probably count the stars. One, two, okay, that's a helicopter. He wasn't saying he's going to have three or four kids. Imagine a society in a time where it's pitch black out there, a clear sky, and you just see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars. You can't even begin to count them all. This is the blessing I believe God has for us. Sometimes we see it and we go, God, please give me just a little bit, enough to survive today, enough to survive this year, enough to survive my lifetime. And God says, no, if you'll be faithful to me, if you'll continue to give me glory and honor when I bless you, if you'll continue to be faithful and compassionate, I'm going to bless you so much, you can't even fathom it. You can't contain it. It's going to go on and on and on beyond anything you can imagine. Count the stars if you can. Truth is you can't because God's blessings are limitless. So let me summarize how we enter into some of those blessings. First of all, the reality is tests come as part of the journey towards blessing. Now, those tests are several things. Sometimes they're beyond your control. Abram didn't start this war. He didn't ask Lot to move in next to Sodom and Gomorrah. That wasn't his choice. Uh, some things happen in your life that are not your fault, but they might be your responsibility. 
in this case, it even goes outside his pragmatic responsibility. This is not a guy in his own household. This is a relative, but it's not part of under his care. And so he recognizes, despite the fact that this test, I could easily turn aside. I could easily hide my face from this challenge. I'm going to make the choice to actually enter in. And that's part of the test. Am I willing to carry the burden of my brother as if it was my own? Now, here's the reality. These tests come with real personal risks. Abram's first of all risking his own life. He's risking his own servants. In order to pursue those guys, he had to leave his own land and his own people exposed. And so sometimes we have to risk our personal finances, our personal health, our personal relational capital to step into a situation to help others. Now, when we step into those situations, they'll try certain things in our lives. They'll try our relational commitment. Uh, I've said this for a lot of people. Hey, man, I'm there for you. Well, when it gets really tough, sometimes it's hard to stay there for people. It's hard to listen to that same story again and again and again while someone's journeying through grieving. It's hard to believe for someone when they're having a hard time believing for themselves. It's hard to say yes when it's easy to just hide and get away. I don't know if you've ever received one of those WhatsApps. Hey, would you be free to talk? And it's a moment where you're really tempted to uh, accidentally not notice that there was a WhatsApp message for you. And sometimes we, we're okay to take breaks. I don't believe in a world where you can get me all the time. Good news is you can get Jesus all the time. I don't always need someone else. I need a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and Jesus is right here for us. That's why he pours his spirit out on us so he can be there all the time. That being said, the culture we're trying to build in my home, in my community, with my friends, with my family, we're people who take our relational commitments seriously. Now, we don't put unfair expectations on people. I'm not asking anyone else. Um, pastor Joey's my pastor, not my God. He's my friend, but he's not my spouse. He doesn't have to be there all the time. What I do expect is when we need one another, we stand with one another, we pray with one another, we believe with one another and see God move in those situations. Now, it'll try your humility. Uh, I don't know if I just read this differently than others. Every time I read this story, I'm thinking, Abram, I'm thinking, God shows up, hey, blessing that God delivered these people. If I'm Abram, I'm like, what about me? Where was God when I got my 318 men and I went out there and fought? But Abram has enough humility to recognize, without God, I can't even take this breath. Without God, these 318 men wouldn't stay loyal. Without God, I wouldn't have the wisdom to train those 318 men. Without God, I wouldn't have the wisdom of how to prepare them for the battle. So he stays humble and recognizes not that he's lowly, but that God is higher. And that's why he celebrates him as God most high. He's above any wisdom I have. He's above any power I have. Ultimately, it'll test your trust. Am I looking at God or am I looking at myself? Am I looking at his provision or am I looking at my own ability? Because in that last moment, the temptation was, hey, there's all these riches laid out here and you can do it the cheap and easy way. You could just take what Sodom's offering. Yet he held on believing that God had something better for him. Tests prepare us ultimately for greater blessing. What is the greater blessing? greater recognition of God's provision. Ultimately, Abram wasn't that interested in the money because he knew he could make money. He had been successful financially. He had been successful in business. Where his lack was is, I don't have an heir. So he recognized the provision I need is beyond myself. I need God to show up and provide beyond what I can do myself. He also got a greater revelation of God's purpose. God was saying to him, you're crying out for one son. I'm trying to prepare you to be the father of many nations. And that revelation will come over time. Ultimately, it's a greater encounter with God's presence. 
Abram may not have even fully realized it, but he had the opportunity to see God in the presence of Melchizedek. He had the opportunity to hear God in that connection in Genesis 15. We don't know how God exactly spoke to him, but God himself spoke to Abram and they spoke as friends. Because he was willing to face the test, he got to enjoy the greater intimacy with God's presence. How did it ultimately all work out? Abram believed the Lord. God credited that to him as righteousness. What God's intention for you and I is, is to carry us through trials so that we can be so close to him. By faith, we can hold on to him. We can trust what he's promising to us. And when we do, it sets us in a right position with him, with ourselves, and with our destiny so that we can walk into everything God has for us, that fullness we often talk about. Now, as we close, I want to celebrate how we get there. We talked about that different spirit that can believe God. It's ultimately God's grace that empowers us to believe. Jesus coming, living, and dying, rising from the dead for us, offered us that gift of the Holy Spirit. His grace comes into us. That's his power that's unearned. It's supernatural power and ability to live differently. When that comes into us, we now can trust God at a deeper level. We can understand and walk with him in his purpose and presence at a different way. We celebrate that in the taking of communion together. Every time we take bread and take a cup, we recognize Jesus' body broken so that my body, spirit, soul, and body could be made whole. We recognize his blood shed so my sins could be forgiven. So as we close today, I want you to, in your own time, just take your time and celebrate the fact that Jesus loved you enough to really die for you. He also loved you enough to rise again and invite you to become his home. He says by his spirit, he comes and makes his home in us that we can pray to him every day. We can meditate on his word together with him and enjoy his presence in our fellowship with one another. So God bless you this week as you spend time in prayer, meditating on God's word, celebrating him in proclaiming Jesus in communion and fellowshipping with one another. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Every Nation Singapore podcast. We hope you've been blessed by today's message. For more information, visit everynation.org.sg.